Well, my thanks to everyone who has been involved in the service so far and have led us so faithfully as we've worshipped together. A word of note on uh, our brother Neil, since I know that he is well-loved by many of us. I had a chance to visit with him a little bit this week, and uh, when I stopped in and visited him in hospital, he seems to be doing fairly well physically. Um, for those of you that don't know, he had a stroke that uh, paralyzed the left side of his body. Um, his mental faculties are all still there. He is still Niels and still very much the brother that we know and love. Um, but while I was there, it was encouraging to see that he is able to twitch his toes. If you pick up his paralyzed arm and pull against it, he's able to pull back against you. So there is still some manner of function there, and we continue to pray that his healing would even be complete. But uh, it is definitely a struggle for Niels right now. It is hard for him to be in his bed. When I asked him what was causing him difficulty, he says, just, just being stuck in this bed. And yet, even stuck in that bed, Niels is still greatly concerned about the welfare, spiritually in particular, of those that he is in his unit with, whether it be the staff or the fellow patients. And I talked with Niels about his struggles and his suffering, and then he shared about a, another patient in the wing who is a relative of one of the staff in the wing, and Niels gets quite emotional, and he looks at me and asks a question that will continue to stick with me. This is a man who is paralyzed on one side and just had a stroke, and he just asked me, what do we have if we don't have Christ? It's particularly thinking of his fellow patience in that wing. What do we have if we don't have Christ? He knows that he has Christ. And yet many of them do not have that same assurance and that same hope. So pray that that hope would continue to grow in his heart and overflow to those that work with him, that he would be given opportunities to share the gospel where he is. And keep that in mind. What do we have if we don't have Christ? And I'm sure that as we get into our message here this morning, you will see that that question is quite applicable to our passage. We're getting to the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you've been tracking since the start, we began the first week of January, and this little letter that in my Bible takes up a little less than four full pages has now taken us straight through to August. But you'll understand what I mean if you've been tracking that the letter to the Ephesians can feel very inward-focused, focused on our own individual spiritual well-being, focused on the well-being of the church itself, particularly the church in Ephesus. Look to how you can care for one another. Look to how you can care for your own souls. Paul drives home the incredible importance of both our individual and corporate 
identity in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. But lest his listeners and readers become overly introspective or cloistered, Paul does remind them that all of this prayer that he has made for them, all of this equipping that he has done in this letter, it is being done for a purpose. It is being done because they do live in a world. Paul reminded his audience in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But in that passage, you'll recognize it's all past tense language. This is who you were, but no more. But now we get some present tense function of this equipping work that Paul's doing. That they would be strengthened for the battle ahead, the battle of the Christian life. One of the most beautiful forms of literature in the English language or Maybe another language as well, I don't know. I absolutely love the personal letter. As you read a personal letter, these communications, although they've kind of fallen by the wayside a little bit today, an email isn't quite the same. But as you read them, you get a view into a person's life. You get to almost walk in the shoes of both the author and the recipient of the letter. And sometimes you may even be blessed to be able to receive that letter, even though it's secondhand. It might be across decades or centuries, but you hear or read this letter and you can receive it almost as your own, as though it was written straight to you. And such is the way that we receive this letter to the church in Ephesus. We know that this letter was not written to us. It was written to first-century Gentile Christians in the bustling city of Ephesus. But at the same time, by the grace of God, it was written to us, given life by the Spirit for the instruction of saints across all ages, in all times, in all places. And as he starts to bring things to a close in verse 10 of chapter 6, he starts with this word, Finally. He's bringing this in for a landing here. And at the end of any letter, especially a personal letter, you have one last chance to kind of drive home the message at hand. And I mean, some personal letters, it's kind of just a life update. Be like, okay, I went to the store, I visited Mr. So-and-so, that kind of thing. But then there's other letters, the, the really good ones, that are full of purpose. You have love letters. You have these exhorting letters. And these letters often drip with emotion and can very obviously have an aim, an objective, something they're working towards. Imagine a love letter that ends without a final declaration of, I love you. Or a letter to a soldier at war that doesn't end with either a stay safe or be of good courage. Without that kind of final push, the letter would kind of fall flat. There's, there's something that would be missing. And 
Here, Paul has spent the last six chapters of this letter building up and instructing and exhorting these Ephesian believers. And he would have them know true faith and grow as members of Christ's body. He wrote of who these believers were, their formal life. He has written of who they are, who they are in Christ, their new life. And now he brings in a who they must be, what they need, and gives a charge for these beloved saints. I'd ask that before we read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17, which is our passage this morning, but I'd ask if you would uh, join with me in prayer. Oh God, as we come to this time where we can dig into your word to feed upon it and be changed by it, we ask that that would not be done by human cunning or human intelligence or human wisdom, but that you might be at work in our hearts and our lives by your Holy Spirit. For our wisdom, our cunning can accomplish nothing, but by your Holy Spirit, you can accomplish even the resurrection of our souls that were dead. So, Lord, we pray that you would bring our souls to life if they are not yet alive. Bring your word to life in the hearts and the minds of your people that we might see and know you for who you are. That we might be strengthened, that we might be encouraged, and that all of this might be done for your glory and for the good of your people. Bless the reading and the preaching of your word, O Lord, and we thank you that you have given it to us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is God's Word. Lord willing, next time we will get to that final element of prayer. But in typical Pauline fashion, before even beginning to engage the, the how, the meat of his exhortation, he identifies the foundation on which all of this rests. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The wording there is really distinctive, and it uses the same phrase for the might of the Lord that he uses in his prayer in chapter 1 of Ephesians. 
He prays that the Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory would give these believers the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened that they might know what is the hope to which He had called them. What were the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? And what is that great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. The might of the Lord, His great power and strength is displayed most clearly in Christ, particularly in the resurrection and glorification of Christ. For in this, all things have been placed in subjection to Christ, although we do not yet see the fullness of that. It is in the Lord and in Him alone that we find our strength. We have no might of our own by which to combat even one of our sins. Think of a time where you in your life have really tried to nail down and you had a sin that was bothering you and you just tried to muscle through it and do it on your own. How'd that work out? Maybe you were able to squash it down and stuff it down for a while. But that sin did not go away. It is only in the strength of Christ that we can have any kind of victory. And we have to recognize that all of the armies of hell and the devil himself is against the Lord's people. They are drawn up in battle against the people who would follow the Lord. But the might of God is shown to His people in Christ, our Jesus, the risen Savior. In Luke 6, Jesus said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. The only source of strength for these believers in Ephesus and the only source of any kind of strength for us as believers now is in Him, is in His might. For many of us in the Western world, we have become fairly detached from this concept of a real spiritual world. We like to pretend that there's nothing else going on beyond what we can see, beyond what we can put under a microscope. This idea of a devil and rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil, we like to just lay that aside and say, well, that's, that's a problem for more spiritual people than me. But that is something that's fairly unique to our culture. Much of our world and thinking of Ephesus in partic particular 
That world was and is very real. Very obviously real. You get a chance, ask our brother June if in his visits to the animistic tribes in the Philippines, if there's an awareness of the spiritual realm. Spirits and omens and talismans and occult practices. And the city of Ephesus was no different. It was a hub for every spiritual and occult practice you could name. And these saints in Ephesus came out of that setting. Imagine you come from a world just surrounded in a culture that acknowledges and consorts with and even worships these evil spirits. This is a culture where curses were kept at bay by these powerful names of greater spirits or other gods. You've come out of that. You are now worshiping a different god. And yet your whole life has been spent in this, surrounded by this spiritual realm. Imagine the fear that could so easily take root in the heart of these people. My whole life has been spent acknowledging that there's spirits everywhere, and now I have disregarded those spirits, and I'm following a new God, what are those spirits going to do to me? And they've left behind their old means of protection. They can't carry their talismans. They can't invoke the names of these greater spirits. They have now to understand that there is only one name that they need to invoke, that there is only one name by which they can be saved. And these believers also would have been well aware that in leaving these old spiritual practices, they would have made people mad. The priests or shamans or whatever it was that they had just left would not be happy that they had just left and likely would be laying curses upon them. What fear that would be if they didn't know the incredible might of their Lord Jesus. Their hope, our hope, the only true hope of all mankind is in Christ. I like that in this passage, Paul is using very militaristic languages. Unfortunately, we've gotten rid of a lot of those old kind of military-sounding songs. Maybe they just didn't quite fit with some of our own cultural sensitivities. But the Christian life is a life of battle. It's a life of war against sin, against all of these principalities and powers. So this language has a place in our, in our worship. And the picture that Paul's using here is of the church making a great defense. Anyone with any kind of mind for strategy knows that one of the keys to making a good defense is choosing your position. Imagine an army attacking you in the middle of an open field versus you walled up in a mountain fortress. Our defensive position, the way where we make our stand against the powers of this world, is in the great fortress the mighty fortress that is our God. 
The church is built upon the bedrock of the gospel. And yet, even a great fortress can be overtaken if its defenders are ill-equipped or unprepared. But God's people are anything but ill-equipped, at least unless they choose to be. If you choose to be ill-equipped, if you choose to leave your Bible to gather dust, if you choose to neglect prayer, if you choose to avoid any kind of spiritual discipline, don't be surprised if you are found weak and are overwhelmed when you face spiritual trials. We are only ill-equipped if we choose to be. And that is why Paul calls these Ephesian believers to put on the panoplia of God. That's the phrase that's translated the whole armor. And the picture there is every piece of the battle dress of a soldier. Every item that a soldier would put on to be ready for war, that is the panoplia. If I showed up to battle without a sword, how useful would I be? What if I showed up to battle with a sword, but still in my underwear from not getting ready in this morning? Equally as useless. And I would not only be useless, not only would I be unprepared, I would be a hazard to myself and a hazard to the whole unit. If I showed up with no weapon or no armor, there is no chance that my commanding officer would be like, okay, go ahead, because he knew that I would be the weak link in the chain, and I would put everyone else at risk. We just finished a section in Ephesians on our responsibility to one another. How can I care for you? How can I protect you? How can I do my due diligence towards my fellow believers if I am ill-equipped to protect even myself, much less you? As I was thinking about this, I don't have experience in wartime service, but I was thinking about my interactions with the fire department and while there, I have learned the incredible importance of proper PPE, personal protective equipment, and the value of being able to depend upon the brother or sister working beside me. I've been in buildings that reach temperatures hotter than your oven will go, 500 and even 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And these would have killed an unprotected person in seconds. But because of the equipment that I had put on, because of the people alongside me, I came out unscathed. When we're going into these situations, it's called going into IDLH environments, immediately dangerous to life or health. And one of the most important things that was drilled into me when I was being trained was that if I'm going into one of those situations, I need to do, one, I need to wear my PPE, and two, I need to do a buddy check. Once we are in our full gear, our full battle dress, we have our partner check us over. They look over every inch of us looking for any exposed skin anywhere and make sure that our equipment is ready and prepared. 
And once they've checked us over, then we do the same for them. And then and only then are we allowed to go into that dangerous environment. Brothers and sisters, our world is immediately dangerous to life and health. Spiritual life and spiritual health. Not only is the very atmosphere of our world, our culture, totally toxic to our souls, but we also have opponents, spiritual and physical, who would actively attempt to cut us down and accomplish the destruction of our souls. What would it look like for us to approach life with the mindset of a soldier or a firefighter who wouldn't even think about going out into that world without the proper protective equipment and the proper tools, without the armor and the weaponry of the trade. And more than that, what would it look like for each one of us as the family of God to buddy check one another every now and then? To go, are you prepared? Are you safe to go into a world that is going to be toxic to your soul? Another part of my life, being a foster parent, I have the opportunity to go to powwows every year. And oftentimes, lots of what you see at a powwow is a beautiful cultural festival. You get to see what First Nations culture is about, and it can be a great thing. But you also will be aware that there is absolutely spiritual elements involved. And when I go to these events, I know that there are spiritual forces at work that are against my Savior and would seek to destroy my soul, and yet when I'm there, I'm not worried. Why? I know that I'm told to wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these forces are wrestling against my soul. I was wrestling through this, and I had the opportunity to sit down with a First Nations brother from Vermilion. He was an elder at a church down there, and I had a chance to talk with him. And he reminded me of Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and 1 John 4, 4. Romans 8, 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In 1 John 4, 4, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This brother asked me, in light of the promises made in Scripture, in light of the greatness of my Savior, if I felt that the power of these spiritual authorities exceeded that of Jesus? Obviously, the answer was no. And he told me that if you're going to these events, go steeped in prayer, but go in the confidence that my Savior's might transcends any other spiritual power, transcends that of any other demonic activity. I can trust in the strength of my Savior. 
So go and look for a chance to share the gospel while you're there. What a beautiful opportunity it is. At our Bible study on Wednesday, June reminded us that according to Scripture, we do have an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for who he can devour. And that we need not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So whether you're in a more obviously spiritually charged environment like a powwow, or the less obviously, though no less charged environment of day-to-day life, we know that we are standing upon the firm foundation of the gospel and in the equipping that he provides. And we can do so with confidence. Just before we get to the content of our spiritual battle gear, I also want to acknowledge our passage's message on what this gear equips us to do. In verses 11 and 12, we have the word against, repeated six times. Against flesh and blood. That's not where we fight. But against the schemes of the devil, against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are to be strengthened to stand against them, And that's the important word, that we are to stand. Verses 11 to 14, again, we have the word stand repeated four times. Stand, stand, stand. I'm reminded of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I might hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. That is what this battle gear allows us to do, to stand firm upon the promise of the gospel. That gospel which is given to us by the Father in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And we might stand against all the powers of this world. To the point when Jesus was talking to Peter and Peter had confessed Jesus as the Messiah and Lord as the Son of God. He was told that even the very gates of hell would not prevail against God's church. We may stand because we have been given the ground to stand upon and the equipment to stand with. The whole armor of God. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Truth. Righteousness, the gospel of peace, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. These are the Christian's attire for the hazardous and hostile environment in which we make our lives. And each of those elements is essential. To be without one of them is to expose ourselves to great injury and harm at the hands of the enemy and his minions. 
And if we do so, we also expose one another to danger as we fall to the enemy's attacks. And each of these elements is a gift directly from the Lord. It's to be found in Christ. If you were to read this passage, having just read the prophet Isaiah, you would hear overlap. And Paul is pulling directly from Isaiah that this servant that is found in Isaiah, this Messiah that is promised, he is the one who demonstrates all of these things. Isaiah 11, 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Chapter 59, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Chapter 52, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Verse four, or chapter 49, verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of His hand. He hid me. We are given truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. That, those are given to us as believers, as equipment for what we are doing. But more than this, these are the things that are characteristic that come directly from our Christ, the Messiah, our Lord and Savior. Paul's message in this passage this morning is twofold. First, there are great enemies of the church, both spiritual and physical, that are going to be doing battle against the church, is going to be attacking the church, and not just the church as a universal global whole, but individual Christians trying to tear our faith apart. That is our reality. We have spiritual enemies. But more than that, we have a Savior who has accomplished our salvation Himself. Jesus has accomplished your salvation. And He has given us the very tools, His very tools, that we may also work towards that which He's already accomplished. Unfortunately, I've heard this passage preached as a formula. If you want God's blessing, if you want victory in Jesus, if you want victory in this life, then you must put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet must be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. You have to take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. And if you'll just be truthful, righteous, sharing the gospel, faithful, saved, well acquainted with the Word, then you will have victory in Christ. And if you aren't living in victory, if you don't know the victory that comes with Christ, take a look at this list, and if you're lacking in any one of them, bring it up to speed, and you will have your victory. You will conquer that giant in your life. Just find that area that's lacking, build it up, and you'll be good to go. But reading this passage, I'm not getting a formula if you do this. Paul's pulling from that prophetic account in Isaiah, God's servant, this promised Messiah. Nothing 
anywhere in this letter to the Ephesians points primarily to this if-then works-based mentality towards salvation. I hate to break it to you, but the promise that we have is if we have sinned, then we deserve death. If we have sinned, we deserve death. Instead of this self-salvation nonsense, we are told right from the beginning of this epistle that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And how has He blessed us in the Beloved? He has given us the ground to stand on and the equipment to stand with. All of us have sinned. All of us deserve death. And yet, God doesn't give us what we deserve. God has graciously chosen an undeserving people out of the world for His glory and for our salvation. Do we need to be truthful and righteous and share the gospel and faithful and saved and acquainted with the word? Yes, absolutely. We've had some great conversations about that this week. June told a joke this week that put us all a little bit on edge and then eased the tensions. We're all sitting down at Tim Goodbrand's house, me and... Pastor Jim and Deborah and Sherry, and we're all sitting there, and June kind of sits back and goes, I believe salvation is accomplished by faith plus works. Let you, let you sit with that for a second. I believe salvation is accomplished by faith plus works. If you're paying attention, that should make you a little bit uneasy, and all of us are like, okay, maybe this is a language thing. Maybe we need to have a conversation with June here. There's something wrong. And then he goes, but whose works? <sighs> Answer, obviously, being the work accomplished by Christ. Do we need to be all of these things? Do we need to be absolutely truthful and righteous? Are we called to that? Yes. Are we called to share the gospel? Yes. Are we called to remain faithful and to be saved by the work of the Holy Spirit? Are we called to be well acquainted with the sword of the Spirit, with God's Word? Yes. But our salvation is not accomplished by faith plus our works. Our salvation is accomplished by faith in the one who has done all of the work, and that faith itself is even a gift from God. So, brothers and sisters, I would have each of us be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. When you read this whole armor of God, don't think of, I'm going to put on all of the armor of God, and I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to do... Yes, Put on all of the armor of God. Put on all of these things that He has gifted to us. And then stand in the strength knowing that Christ has done it. 
There's a reason why the language here is defensive, not offensive, because Christ has gone on the offense. Christ has gone and defeated death and the grave and Satan, our great enemy. That is why we can say, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, sin, where's your victory? There is no sting. There is no victory in death and sin because Christ has gone on the offensive, has come and defeated those things. Christ has accomplished this. And so we dress up in the armor and the weaponry that he supplies, and we stand firm in that, knowing that the war is over, though the battle still rages on. We know that there is one that has gone before us. Our strength and our hope is not in our own faith or truth or righteousness, but in all the actions and character of our great Messiah, the Son of God, who was incarnate on this earth, who lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we deserved, and was raised again, is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. That is our hope. We have great works to do for God. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But the greatest of the works, the eternal work of salvation, has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus Christ, according to the will of the Father and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our world is still a dangerous place. It is hazardous to our souls. And we walk in it. We walk through it. We can't just hide in our little corner of the world and say, well, they're out there and we're in here and we're just going to leave them to do their thing. We walk in the world. We are surrounded by all manner of spiritual dangers. We must walk in the good works that God has prepared for us in this world, standing firm upon his name, that God's name might be glorified, that his name might be brought to the nations. It is not safe for New Tribes Missions to send missionaries to minister to the Muslim people or the tribal people of the Philippines that have never heard the gospel. There's nothing safe about that. There's nothing safe about sharing the gospel in a workplace that is totally hostile to anything of God. But even as in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tossed into the seven times heated furnace, they knew that the God whom they served was able to deliver them. And if we are in Christ, then we have been delivered already. We will suffer in this world that is hostile to Christ. We will be attacked, and we must take a stand upon the gospel, clad in the full armor and weaponry that he provides. But even in this battle, we fight knowing that although it continues, the war is over. 
the outcome is decided. Our Savior has won, and we don't need to be afraid of what this world can throw at us. We don't need to be afraid of the spiritual powers in this world. That is great news in a world where we are going to be under attack. Praise God for our great and glorious hope that we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength, not of our own might, but His. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, You have equipped us well. And we pray that we would not find ourselves to be ill-equipped by our own faithlessness. But that we might cling to You. That we might cling to the Savior who has contended on our behalf and even now intercedes before Your throne. That we might cling to the hope that we have, that we have believed upon the Gospel and we have been saved. This hope that has been sealed by Your Holy Spirit. That the Spirit within within us is no longer the Spirit at work within the sons of disobedience, but the Spirit within us is the very Spirit of the Most High God. May that give us great courage in the world that we live in. May that give us great courage to stand for the truth of the Gospel no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how spiritually charged, no matter how spiritually dangerous to us this situation might be. May we stand firm upon the truth of the Gospel and in the equipment that You have provided. Lord, we are so blessed. We are so thankful that You are strong. And that You are strong even in our weakness. Especially in our weakness. And we confess that we have tried to be strong on our own. We have tried to muscle through and do it ourselves. We've tried to show how good and truthful and righteous and holy we can be. But our righteousness is worthless, O Lord. But the righteousness of Christ has infinite value. Help us to depend upon You. Forgive us for when we have failed to do so. Work upon our hearts and in our lives that we might know You and pursue You and lay down anything of our old life and any of our own strength and take up this new armor that You have provided for Your people. That we would take up the promise that we have in Christ. Lord, what a blessing it is to worship together. What a blessing it is that we have your word and that we might know you. Do not let us neglect that. 
do not let us shy away from what you have prepared us for. May we as your people go forth in power and stand firm upon the hope that you have given us and the equipping that you provide. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.